Nice to have you with us this Sunday morning. Jerry Nichols is about to join us. Mr. Nichols is a communications consultant who has worked for advocacy organizations and politicians in both Canada and the United States. He's a frequent commentator on radio and those TV chat shows and was formerly vice president of the National Citizens Coalition. He lives in Oakville, Ontario. And according to his website, he's cuter than Justin Trudeau. Always a pleasure to welcome Jerry Nichols to the airwaves of CKNW. Morning, Jerry. Good morning, Sterling. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Got to talk about that Doug Ford. He's uh, he's quite a guy. He's turned into a bit of a surprise. I've been back to Ontario a few times since Mr. Ford was elected premier, and here's the buzz that I picked up. Well, you know, he's kind of a bull in a china shop. He has the potential, I think, to be our very own Donald Trump, but who knows? The guy may surprise us. And that was sort of the attitude I heard from most voters who, uh, I mean, he clearly knocked off the Liberals and won a majority government, but even with that, people were kind of skeptical. But since this COVID-19 pandemic has kicked in, Mr. Ford has risen to the occasion and surprised, I think, Jerry, probably 99% of Ontario voters. Well, Doug Ford has gone through an amazing transformation in the last seven months. You know, the way I would put it is that six or seven months ago, uh, the media was beating up on Ford. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, being portrayed as sort of a an oaf or an incompetent who was whose life goal was to destroy our healthcare system and our education system. Uh, recall that during the, uh, the federal election, the Liberals actually made Ford their number one target, more so than even Andrew Scheer. Mm-hmm. And they did that because Ford was unpopular, and they're trying to sort of link him to Sheer. You and I had that conversation during the last federal election. Justin Trudeau decided to run against Doug Ford in Ontario, even though Andrew Sheer was the official guy. That's right. That's how unpopular Ford yes, was deemed to be. Exactly. Now he's like uh, Winston Bloody Churchill. Mm. Uh, everybody loves him. The Toronto, even the Toronto Star, the left-wing Toronto Star, is saying nice things about. Ford, he's doing well in the polls, and yeah, he's like he's become the, the political hero of Canada. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, during a crisis, people tend to rally around the leader because if, if for no other reason, they want to believe their leaders are competent and their leaders will keep them safe. And, sure. and Ford has also taken initially has taken some very strong and decisive measures early on to, to sort of clamp this thing down, and and he looked like a leader. Right, he looked like a strong leader. In times of crisis, in times when people are worried or frightened, they want a strong leader. So and Ford Jerry actually was the leader that people needed. And he stood up to the microphone on those tough days when there were no positive uh, numbers to bring forward. And he looked right into the camera and said, "This is not going to be pretty. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. Here's the real deal." And people went, "Okay, at least he's being straight up with us." Well, it's also a bit of a contrast with Prime Minister Trudeau, who would not release his modeling as to what this disease was going to bring, and, and Ford did, right? He said, here's, here's what's going to happen. Here's what we think is going to happen. Here's what we're afraid is going to happen, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And yeah, there were some pretty sobering numbers he was talking about. Uh, so that was, and the other thing that I think that's different between him and Trudeau is that Trudeau's kind of isolated himself, and he comes out every day for his press, but that's it. Whereas Ford has been doing, like, the, the Trudeau thing, he's been doing photo ops, you know, mm-hmm. he's handing out, you know, face masks and things like that. So he's been kind of everywhere in the media. 
and I think this has helped his image as well. Right. You see him working. He's got a pickup truck, and he goes out there, and he right. unloads boxes of uh, PPEs at the, the rear entrances to hospitals and does real guy stuff. Uh, right, and, and that's, that's kind of the tangible stuff that you know, people say, hey, you know what, he's, he's out there. He's doing these things for us. He's, you know, he, he cares about us. And, and that's, that's an important thing for a politician to sort of have that vibe. And he's also, frankly, wearing his heart on his sleeve a lot, Jerry. His mother-in-law is 95, uh, has Alzheimer's, is in a care home, and has been diagnosed with COVID-19. And he's had, uh, 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 on top of the Bob Cajun uh, uh, Seniors Home and other communities across Ontario where there have been high numbers of deaths of, of, among seniors, uh, Mr. Ford has not in, diminished these numbers or in any way uh, done anything but respond as positively as one could uh, to the point where he's uh, shed a few tears uh, uh, over the past couple of weeks and doubtless will shed a few more. But you also get the feeling that underneath all of that, there's a major overhaul to senior care in the province of Ontario right around the corner. Well, I think if there's an Achilles heel for Ford, it has been you know, the nursing home and the old age homes where there have been, you know, a, an awful lot of people dying in those places. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, once this sort of we're all in this, in this together kind of mindset kind of fade, starts to fade or mm-hmm. wane, people are going to start looking back and saying, well, why didn't you do more to protect our senior citizens, right? So this could be something that, you know, could come to haunt, back to haunt them later on. Um, but right now, uh, yeah, as you said, Sterling, right now he's kind of like the man of the hour. Well, you know, it's interesting, and I, I mentioned a few moments ago that some of, some of the people in Ontario that I, I know and was talking with when I was back last were talking about, uh, you know, comparing Ford to Boris Johnson and Donald Trump because he's got that kind of blonde, unkempt thing going on. Uh, but also, uh, I was struck yesterday by, unlike Mr. Trump, who was liberating Minnesota and liberating Denver and all of these cities, basically encouraging people to get out into the streets and and raise a little hell and protest the lockdown. Mr. Ford took a look at the people in Toronto, a couple of hundred of them who were not social distancing, who were being righteously indignant, and called them reckless hooligans. So much for urging on professional malcontents. Well, I think he actually called them Yahoo, Sterling. Okay, well, there you let's, go. Let's, get, let's be accurate about this. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, right now, Ford's whole thing has been better safe than sorry. Yes. And um, how long that will work for him, I don't know. Uh, as this thing drags on into the summer months and we get start getting nice weather and people start saying, hey, I want to walk to the park or I want to go to a, you know, camping or whatever, and he says, no, I'm going to cancel summer, then people might start turning on, right? Then there might be more yahoos out there who are saying, why don't you open up the province? And especially if there is more of an economic bite, if people start to feel the economic bite of the lockdown. I think right now people are still kind of worried. They're kind of frightened. And that's sort of helping keep them indoors. Um, and they're getting a lot of good government subsidies, which is sort of taking some of the, uh, the pain out of it. But sooner or later, you know, I, I, I like to use the expression that the Romans used to say, you're holding a wolf by the ears. Right. There's there's no good way out of this predicament. Um, yes, opening up the economy too soon mm-hmm. might be risky because sure. it might cause the infection to spread. But keeping the economy too close for too long might cause some really serious uh, economic repercussions down the road. You know, some people are talking about a depression. Mm-hmm. Even. 
So I'm not sure what the answer is, whether or not to liberate now or to later. I don't know. But sooner or later, the politicians in Lake Ford are going to have to face that decision. And Jerry, we talked about uh, Doug Ford and the amazing transformation that he has. Uh, uh, we've witnessed him go through since uh, becoming premier and really stepping up to the task uh, and, and uh, uh, assuming the leadership role uh, rather convincingly. There is another leadership contest of sorts underway, the National Conservative. Conservative Party, with whom you've had a great deal of association over the years, attempting to replace Andrew Scheer. And if, if for no, uh, the only thing that's happened this week, uh, I think, with this uh, Derek Sloan, this uh, Belleville, Ontario MP, taking cheap shots at uh, Theresa Tam, uh, and then Andrew Scheer's refusal to have anything to say. We don't comment on leadership candidates' remarks. We'll leave that up to the voters. Uh, if anything, we were reminded this week at why uh, Andrew Scheer absolutely has to go. Well, that's harsh, Sterling. I know. I know. <laughs> um, well, you know, we, Scheer's, Scheer's weaknesses as a leader have been pretty apparent for a long time now. And I think this is why the conservatives wanted to sort of rush through a leadership I uh, remember that they just sort of called it in, in, in late last year, and yeah. they're going to have the original plan was to have the leadership by June. But of course, the the pandemic came along and, and messed up all those plans, and it's put the Conservative Party in in really a difficult situation. Uh, we talked about how Ford, you know, is you know suddenly very popular. You could say the same thing about um, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals uh, for the same reasons. Right? Sure. During times of crisis, mm-hmm. people are going to rally around the leader. And he gets 15, 20 minutes a day to, you know, right. a steady hand on the tiller. Here's here's where we're going. Here, we're going to stay the course. Stay with right. us. Right. He's, he's displaying confidence, and he's like saying, don't worry, we know what we're doing. And, and that's what people want to hear. Exactly. Right? They, want to, they want to hear that their leaders have a, a grasp on the situation and that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Trudeau's doing. Um, though, although I must say that, you know, since he's isolated himself, he's taken away his most powerful political weapon, which is the photo op. Yeah, not doing those anymore. That's true. Um, nonetheless, he's still, he's still doing well in the polls. And that makes it difficult for anybody who is an opposition politician. Um, how do you criticize uh, the government that's very popular and that people probably don't want criticized, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think people want to hear that the government doesn't know what they're doing. That doesn't really inspire confidence, you know, in, in the public. So the, the, the conservatives are, are, are they got to be careful. And then you, ha- you mentioned this, this, this Sloan character. Um, you know, he, he did what he did to, I think, probably to get his name in the news. And exactly, he did. yeah. And he did. And, and, and if nothing else, it reminded us that there was actually a conservative leadership race going on. Because I'd kind of forgotten about it. Yeah, you and me both. Um, so, yeah, so, uh, you know, no matter how you slice it, it's, it's a difficult time to be a conservative politician. Now, that might change seven or eight or nine months from now. Again, as I mentioned earlier, when the economic impact of this starts to sink in and people start losing their jobs and, you know, whatever, then that, then that good feeling might start turning into anger and might start turning into resentment, at which time the conservatives might be able to tap into those emotions. But right now, right now, it's, they're really in a difficult situation. So has the uh, campaign been suspended, or is it still going on? Have they decided? Uh, is, is, there a, is there a game plan even underway other than uh, it, it, wannabes uh, creeping into the news for all the wrong reasons? Well, I, as far as I know, the campaigning has been suspended. 
And I think that's that's probably for practical reasons sure. as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, because when people are worried about you know getting a disease or they're worried about paying their bills, the last thing they want to you know get is is a fundraising letter from the Conservative Party saying give us money, right? Or they you know or they don't want to hear about you know petty bickering within the party when you know they're worried about you know a, a pandemic. Mm-hmm. So it's probably a good idea for them to kind of put this on on the on, on the shelf for now. But the problem for that is it's like, you know, people are going to forget about them and, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And it's going to be difficult for them to get, you know, just you can't just sort of push a button and get things going again. Plus, we don't even know when this is going to end. Oh, that's true. That's right? true. We don't know when this is going to end. Were you satisfied, so, by the way, with the, the arrangements that they negotiated? Because, of course, we have this parliament and, and people where the, the, the speaker will figure out how to do virtual. We are masters of long distance communication and have been for a century. We can surely to God put together 338 politicians virtually for a conference call two or three times a week. That technology, I'm sure, is, is doable. They just don't have it at their fingertips. But they only want one seat, one uh, in person session a week at least that's what the government wanted are you satisfied with the the, the deal they cut well I, I think it's important that that governments are held accountable mm-hmm. uh, during times like this because you know again Justin Trudeau is hearing about how great he is from everybody in the media and he's got this you know you know public acclaim and there's a tendency for for in times of crisis for 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 governments to sort of get more power right and they can get away with it by justifying it by saying hey we need more power to deal with this problem and in, you know, we, you know, in ancient Rome, when during times of crisis, they would actually appoint a dictator mm-hmm. for six months because they, you know, needed somebody who could take quick action. And there's a danger in that, that the government might abuse that power or they might go too far. So I think now more than ever, it's during these times of fear and panic that, yeah, somebody's out there keeping an eye on them. Yes. Saying, you know, Don't go too far. You know, we're keeping an eye on you. Um, so I think it's important that they do get this done. I'm not a technical guy. But I'm like you, Sterling. I think, you know, how hard can it be to figure this out? Absolutely. Uh, I'm sure that somebody somewhere, some smart IT guy can come up with a way to, to make this happen. I think so, too. And, and you're right. They've already proven that uh, that once, and it was only two or three weeks ago, when they tried to slip uh, a little provision into one of the remedy bills that would give them unfettered power for the better part of two years. They were caught up in that, and that had to go away. But yeah, with nobody watching or paying close attention, they will uh, push, the, uh, push, push things a little too far. Well, that's the nature of politicians. Right. Um, if they think they can get more power, they'll take it. And now they have a good reason to do it. Um, and, and now they have a justification for, for, you know, people say, yeah, yeah, it's good that, that they have more power because we, we need strong. We, we have to get above petty democratic bickering. Mm. Uh, and I think that's that's kind of a dangerous mindset that we have to be in guard against. Yep, you gotta have got to have the watchdog on duty at all times. Jerry Nichols, always a pleasure, sir. We do appreciate your taking a little bit of time to join us again here on the airwaves of CKNW. We will do it again, guaranteed. And it's time to check in with the vet. Dr. Lauren Edelman is a specialist in internal medicine with Canada West Veterinary Specialists here in Vancouver. Joining us this morning to talk about many things, including COVID-19 and pets. Dr. Edelman, thanks for being with us, and good morning. Good morning to you, too. It's nice to have you with us, Lauren. Uh, Let's talk first and foremost, the big question that everyone wants to know, uh, can my pet catch COVID-19 and pass it along to me? So there have been some sporadic cases where pets 
including cats, dogs, and as you probably heard, some of the lions mm-hmm. and tigers at the Bronx Zoo have actually come down with COVID-19 and been infected. Now, those cases that have all been reported have been suspected to be human-to-animal transmission. And there is still currently no evidence whatsoever that that virus can then be passed back from pets to people. Okay. So there was concern about, and, and you know, you've, you've heard about, uh, for example, when people take the dog for a walk out in the great outdoors, uh, for example, the advice is now don't let strangers pet your dog. Your dog will typically go up to, to a, a person, give them a sniff and a, a tail wag, and the person generally looks down and goes, oh, what a cute puppy, and gives them a pet. That's, that's not encouraged behavior anymore, is it? It is not encouraged, and I think it is definitely really hard for owners. I mean, I'm a, I'm a dog owner myself. Me too. It's really hard to tell someone, you know, um, I'd appreciate if you didn't pet my dog. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the reason where that came from is that because in all of these cases, you know, a few dogs, some cats, it was always suspected to be either someone in the household or potentially exposure outside of the household that caused them to be infected with the virus. Um, the current recommendation is to, yeah, not let other people pet, touch, kiss your animals. Mm-hmm. Now, in saying that, that is a theoretical risk. We don't necessarily have concrete evidence that the virus can survive on the fur um, or anything like that. But just out of an abundance of caution, that's what we're recommending. And if you do practice those social distancing guidelines with your pets, just like you would with yourself, sure. there is very low likelihood that your pet will be of any risk to you or other people. Yeah, so those stories, and of course they're, they are so oddball. I mean, the, a tiger in a zoo for crying out loud, Lauren, and, and there was a cat in Belgium, and I mean, there, we can each recall a specific story where a, a creature has come down with this COVID-19, uh, become infected in some way, but because we can identify each case so clearly in our minds, it must mean there are only a very, very few in the first place. Well, yeah, and I think that's a good point to bring up. You know, there are so many people that are being, whether it's asymptomatically infected or, you know, have been diagnosed with COVID-19 across the world, that if this was something that that was easily transmissible to our companion animals, we would be seeing cases pop up left, right, and center. Sure, yeah. The fact that there's only these sporadic cases identified essentially means that, yes, you know, I don't think the risk to pets is zero, However, you know, I think it's much, much lower, and this is primarily a human-to-human disease. Indeed it is. Uh, Our our guest is Dr. Lauren Edelman uh, from Canada West Veterinary Specialist. Lauren, are you game for a couple of calls from dog and cat owners this morning in case they have a question or two about uh, Rover or, or Kitty? Yeah. All right. 604-280-9898. It's it's early in the morning, but if you're a a creature person like Lauren and I are, uh, then chances are you've already been out for a walk. So (laughs) if you'd like to join us with a question, it's uh, lines are open. 604-280-9898. Talk to us a little bit about Canada West veterinary specialists. You're not your regular neighborhood vet, uh, Dr. Edelman. You are uh, one of those 
clinics that vets refer animals with real issues to, correct? Exactly. So we, um, Canada West Vets is a emergency and referral center, meaning that the patients we see are either referred by your general practitioner, who probably you're used to seeing on a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. um, or they can come in through emergency. Our emergency is a level one critical care center, and it is open 24 hours um, and staffed by you know doctors and nurses 24 hours, just like a human hospital Mm -hmm. would be. And I think, yeah, a lot of people don't realize that just like in human medicine, there's specialists that exist in veterinary medicine as well. So, you know, for instance, I'm an internal medicine specialist. I I scope dogs and cats and, you know, deal with things like infectious disease, autoimmune disease. And, you know, there are specialists pretty much for any specialist you think of in the human world. We exist in the veterinary world. Uh, But generally, to get into your clinic, you're going to need to be referred by your vet, correct? Referred by your vet, or if it's an emergency, you can definitely come in just as a walk-in. But I would say with most veterinary clinics right now, the recommendation would be to call ahead, A, to find out if you should come in, if it's something that needs to be seen for. And B, instructions, especially depending on your current state of if you've been exposed or are positive for COVID-19. Yeah, good point, because when you go to your website, uh, the uh, Canada West uh, Veterinary Specialist website, that's the first thing you get. On top of the homepage, you get a big orange box that describes yeah. basically what you've just said. Here, here are the protocols. Yes, we're open. Uh, in a pinch, we'll be happy to look after you, but uh, you should also know that we're concerned about your health and ours. So, And, and the arrangements can be made, basically, is what the box says, right? Yeah. Uh, And I think right now, veterinary medicine, even though it's considered an essential service, we have been instructed to truly only see urgent and emergent cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's to risk, you know, minimize our risk of exposure and also conserve PPE, which we know is really valuable right now. We don't want to be doing routine spays and neuters and using that valuable PPE um, for things that are not urgent right, right now. Well, we live in a city of over 2 million people when we're talking the Lower Mainland or Metro Vancouver, Dr. Edelman. So it's pretty safe bet that there are animal emergencies all the time, Right. Oh, yeah. We're we're probably busier than ever right now simply because more people are staying home with their pets True. and kind of realizing, oh, you know, my, my cat vomits every day. I, I didn't realize this. Yeah. And so, you know, there are things that are being realized now more than ever that people are bringing their pets in for. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a, 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 just kind of a, a general question, and maybe it will, will in, our, in our second half we'll zoom in on it a little bit. But the, the good news and I see it as wonderful news from the BCSPCA and other animal shelters. And our little Gracie is from the BCSPCA. She's a rescue. Uh, and, and I'm noting that their stock, their inventory of creatures in their shelters is at, in some cases, Lauren, record all-time lows. With all of this extra time so many of us have on our hands, many of us have decided, particularly those of us who are alone, that this is no fun. Perhaps a small furry creature would make time pass by a little more quickly. And so adoptions and fosterings are way up. And with that in mind, Dr. Edelman, some advice for first-time pet and uh, caregivers. Yeah, and I agree. I think that's fantastic. And, you know, we know pets provide emotional and, you know, scientifically proved support during times of stress. You bet. So that's great. You know, I think a couple of things to keep in mind is that if you're going to, you know, get a new pet 
or adopt a new pet, just realize, you know, at some point, this, you know, these restrictions may be lifted. And so keep in mind that, you know, these are 15 plus year commitments and, mm-hmm. and a financial commitment as well. And so what we don't want to have happen is people, you know, getting pets and then they need an emergency and emergency treatment and, you know, not being able to afford care is, mm-hmm. you know, one downside that we see on, you know, on our side. Um, but also, you know, for first time pet owners, it's a little bit difficult right now, especially for those younger dogs, because socialization, which is so crucial to development, is not something that we can really nourish right now from the standpoint of, you know, promoting social distancing with our animals mm-hmm. and with other people. So it's, you know, that's the, the trickiest part, especially for puppies, I would say. Um, really young puppies should be staying inside anyways. But in that kind of crucial four month to to one year mark, where we really want to get them socialized, that can be that can be difficult. But the good the good part about especially with a puppy or a kitten, when they really do require the maximum amount of time and attention from you as they get older, and you bond and get into some kind of rhythm, and they figure out that this is home and they settle into a nice thing. There's there's that all important time consuming bonding period, and what better time to have than this time right now when, when, frankly, if there's anything we complain about, it's too much time in our hands. Exactly, yeah. I know for me, it's great. You know, my my pets, it's like, oh, let's take the dogs out. Let's take the dogs out again. Mm-hmm. So it's a nice it's a nice way to, you know, to give yourself something to. And yes, absolutely. You know, especially um, whether it's a young dog or an older dog, those initial phases and that bonding now is a perfect time to do that. Um, and I think it's great, you know, all these animals that are even being fostered that, you know, would normally be sitting in a shelter. And, um, you know, I think it's wonderful that people are opening their, their hearts and their homes to these to these animals. In terms of commitment, you again talk going back to whether it's shots or whether it's just a regular feeding and grooming and all the rest of that and then of course there are those emergencies as well i wanted to ask you about the the whole notion of pet insurance what uh, it, again because you're a medical specialist a veterinary medicine specialist who see dogs uh, who are in distress and, and other animals and those are generally costly visits and procedures that could be covered by pet insurance what percentage of uh, pet owners who come to your clinic at canada west are actually uh, carrying pet insurance well i would say you know i don't have an exact percentage but i think the being a specialty hospital we see pet owners when they already have reached that level of commitment so our percentages of people having pet insurance may be higher than general practitioners because the people who can go on and continue spending thousands of dollars for, you know, these workups with MRIs and CTs and, you know, ultrasounds, maybe also the people that have invested in pet insurance early on. So I think if you speak to any veterinarian, we are all huge advocates of pet insurance. Mm -hmm. I, even as a veterinarian, I have pet insurance on all of my animals. Um, I just had to take you know, my own cat in yesterday, uh, or two days ago, rather, to my clinic, because she vomited about 12 times in a in a 12 hour period. And, you know, it's a big relief to me even to know that she has pet insurance, because just because I'm a vet doesn't mean I get everything for free. Sure, of course. Yeah. So it turns out to be a wise investment in many cases. 
Absolutely. The key is to get it early on when you adopt or, you know, purchase a pet, um, because if you try and get it after the problem exists, they're not going to insure you for that problem. Ah, gotcha. So the sooner the better. Uh, Another completely different question from a completely different angle. I'm looking through the the Canada West Veterinary Specialist website, uh, and you talk about regularly treating police and service dogs from a variety of municipalities around Metro Vancouver, including the Delta Police dog unit and so on what do police departments and other uh, companies uh, security companies etc that use service dogs what do they do different with their dogs that typical pet owners don't in terms of care well most of the time when there are you know we work a lot with the vancouver police department and um, we do workshops for them our critical care service just had a workshop on kind of emergency treatments and cpr in in dogs for them um first response type of thing Mm -hmm. and when it comes to those animals i mean they all still you know have an owner that one of the members of the police department own that dog um they're just a little bit um you know a lot of them are trained for things like um, you know, bomb sniffing sure, or drug yeah. sniffing mm-hmm. and things like that. And so they, you just have to be a little bit more cautious when you're handling them um, because sometimes they, you know, they are more reactive or they've been trained to respond to certain signals. But in general, I would say that those animals need the same care as any other, as any other patient. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we see them routinely in our hospital and a lot of them, you know, they're awesome dogs. And when they're retired, they're often adopted by their by their you know their carers exactly yeah Uh, we've only got a minute left lauren and it's perhaps not enough time but i'd like you to address the issue of flea season it's coming up to that time of year and now it's all down to one pill once a month when do dogs and cats start taking the anti-flea medicine now yeah, probably already, if not earlier. I've already seen, you know, we're seeing a ton of animals right now with flea dermatitis. Um, and that's a big thing. You know, if, if owners are, are using those type of preventatives, that's a big way they can help us out as veterinarians, too, because some of those appointments, you know, yes, animals need to be seen, but probably aren't a good use of, you know, our protective equipment and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so now, even before now, would have been great. Um, and the hope is that, you know, especially with keeping, you know, things like cats inside now, not allowing cats to roam, hopefully the incidence of fleas and things like that will be reduced. But yeah, definitely getting on that preventative now, sooner rather than later. Excellent stuff. Dr. Lauren Edelman, a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for joining us this morning. We must do this again. Absolutely. CanadaWestVets.com, friends. That's Lauren's website. Lots of good docs there to help you and your creatures. The North Shore Black Bear Society is hoping residents will learn to apply social distancing to bears as well as humans in 2020. Lucy Cadman is the education coordinator with the North Shore Black Bear Society. Good morning, Lucy. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having us on. We really appreciate it. Well, it's good to have you with us. And there's some real basic black bear information that we all really need to have ourselves refreshed of. Let's start, Lucy, with the fact that, uh, and this is really something that we need to remember, black bears are not typical hibernators, are they? Uh, That's right. So uh, black bears don't go into a deep sleep over the winter. Um, in fact, each day a bear will move around in the den and stretch and groom, and that's because they need to be able to respond to threats 
to the den over the winter. Mm-hmm. And so here on the North Shore, um, if residents leave food sources accessible to bears over the winter, uh, especially male bears, some of them may stay awake and active year-round. And we've seen that on the North Shore this year. So um, we should never become complacent with bear attractants. But now with most bears out of their dens, we especially need to make sure that we're not leaving any food sources around our properties that will tempt bears into the neighborhood. Absolutely. And of course, uh, but it is just important to remember that uh, um, now, of course, those bears who were hibernating and uh, enjoying a nice long sleep in are pretty much all awake. They're all up and about right now. (laughs) And it's also a pretty safe bet, Lucy. They're all pretty darn hungry, right? Well, actually, bears don't leave their dens absolutely ravenous, as you might imagine. It's quite like when uh, we skip a couple of meals, you kind of lose your appetite. So it takes a while for them to actually um, start to begin foraging uh, for food. So they'll start by eating the grasses, dandelions and sedges, and they actually won't start to put on any weight until midsummer. So they're actually uh, still using the reserves of fat that they've built up in the fall, well into uh, the spring and midsummer. Okay, now so far we have, and I'm checking your website now, northshorebears.com. Uh, bears have been spotted in the British properties, in neighborhoods near Lighthouse Park, in Dollarton, near Capilano Road, Lynn Valley, and Grousewood. So far, just a few of the sightings so far. And a lot mm-hmm. of these are coming by way of people's security cameras. A lot of these, in fact, sightings are not live sightings, but it's someone reviewing last night's overnight security camera going, oh my gosh, we had a bear in the backyard. That's correct. So a lot of the activity at the moment is very late at night, one or two o'clock in the morning, and people are catching it on their cameras. So there are a lot more people living on the North Shore now and a lot more people with these security cameras. So reports are increasing. We definitely don't have more bears here on the North Shore, just more eyes out there to capture them. Yeah, and, and let's, let's talk about that because the the one thing that is really quite different, I think, this year, Lucy, is the fact that uh, even though more of us are home, more of us are being vigilant with respect to seeing bears either in the daytime uh, live or checking our overnight cameras and so on, but we are noticing with other species as well as bears, coyotes being another one here in Metro Vancouver, as, mm-hmm. as more and more of us, Lucy, stay home, as there is less and less traffic on the major routes, animals, wild animals, and it's not a question of being bold, uh, but they're just being more curious and advancing further into urban areas than they would under more normal circumstances, right? I suppose that there are less people around um, in, in, in that sense, um, uh, in the neighborhoods, perhaps, but yeah. actually we're seeing a huge increase um, in people spending time in, in the regional parks and uh, the district parks. So a huge amount of people spending time on the trails. So actually more people this year, I would imagine, will encounter bears um, in the forest, in their natural habitat. Many more people than I'm sure are used to spending time in the bears' home. So that's what I'm seeing when I'm going out for my daily walks uh, in, in the Deep Cove area a lot more people using the trails, many, many mountain bikers, lots of people out there with their dogs off leash, which is actually a cause of more than half of all negative wildlife encounters between people and bears and other wildlife, cougars and coyotes is off leash dogs. So we really want to get that messaging out there to people that are spending time in the bears' home. Uh, There are best practices that we need, that we must practice, and that's using your voice 
on the trails to alert bears and other wildlife to people are close by. With a black bear, if a bear hears a person coming, they're going to climb into a tree and sure. hide in the tree canopy until you've gone. So there are things that we can do uh, to avoid meeting a bear in the first place. Well, and that's very important to know, isn't it? And it really is. Uh, the And, you know, it's sort of counterintuitive because if you're going out for a walk in the park, Lucy, uh, and, and, and yes, you should have the dog on a leash if you're in an unfamiliar area where, where if there's a very real possibility for wild animals, your dog should be leashed. I'll grant you that much. But typically, you want to hear the bird songs. You you want to hear the, the 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 noises of nature and so your instinct is to be quiet so you can hear all the cool stuff but if you're quiet you could very easily come upon a bear or another wild creature and both of you would be equally surprised the outcome would be utterly unpredictable so despite the fact that you it, it sort of flies in the face of what you're outdoors to to enjoy which is the quiet of nature you should actually be kind of noisy when you're on a trails in other words let other creatures in the area know you're there and and reduce the opportunity for surprise Absolutely. So you can still enjoy the birds, enjoy those sounds of nature. You don't need to be talking all the time. Sure. Just every now and then calling out, especially if you're going over um, creeks and rivers, um, going through narrow trails around blind corners. That's when you need to just be a little bit louder with your voice. And your voice really is the best tool. Those bear bells are actually very quiet and don't identify you as a human. The human voice is the best tool. Bears are very smart and recognize human voices. Right. And and, and bears, uh, as I understand it, uh, if you are in a situation, and we're coming to the critical point here, Lucy, uh, if you are in a situation where, oh my gosh, there's a bear, and there's mm-hmm. maybe 20 or 30 meters between you and it, uh, and both of you are kind of surprised to see each other, Mm-hmm. typically the bear is not interested in having you for lunch. The bear would uh, really like to just leave this situation ASAP, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, bears do not see, black bears do not see people um, as a food source. And uh, typically they do not want to be close to people. And they spend a lot of time and energy trying to avoid us. But we will have those close encounters from time to sure. time. And so the the main point to remember is to try and stay as calm as you can. So we suggest taking a nice deep breath and that just gives you a moment to collect yourself. The bear will need a moment too to figure out what you are. They've got great eyesight, but they might not realize that you're a person. Mm -hmm. And so we help out the bear and we use our voice. So in a calm voice, always nice and calm, you're going to talk to that bear in any language. They don't understand English. Of course. And as you're talking to the bear in that calm voice, (laughs) you're going to be backing away nice and slowly. And that shows the bear that you're giving the bear space. You're giving the bear respect. You're not a threat. Okay, and you move your body and you you go backwards so also that you can see what the bear is up to. You always want to see what the bear is doing. Now, we suggest not directly staring at the bear eye to eye. Animals see that as a threat, as a challenge. But look at the bear's chest, look at his legs. And when you see the bear, go back into the bushes or climb the tree. Remember, a bear that's in a tree is not coming down until you've gone very far away and the bear feels safe enough to come down. A tree canopy is their safe place. Sure. And so you back away, and when you see the bear leave, that's when you can turn around and slowly leave. But turning it's all about being as calm as you can be. Yeah, and, and but uh, I think a big mistake that people make is, oh my gosh, there's a bear. Let's get out of here. And you turn around Absolutely. and you take off. And, and in some cases, young male bears particularly will see that, oh, something to chase. Let's go. And that's, exactly. that's, that's not really ideal, is it? 
Thankfully, it doesn't happen very often. But, you know, if people aren't very familiar with bears and they've not had many encounters, your instinct when you see something that's a bit scary to you is to scream and run away. You bet. We have to go against that instinct because animals do have uh, a natural instinct to chase something that is moving fast. And you're right, young male bears um, are especially curious. What's happening over the next couple of weeks is that these teenage bears, these juvenile bears that are a year and a half old, are be pushed away from their, their mother and be sent away to find their own home range. So typically around this time of year is when we see those curious teenage bears coming into the community looking for an easy meal. Or they might be the bear that approaches you. Now, they won't get close, but they're less likely to retreat. And they might approach you. Now, if a bear approaches you, you have to be very brave and you stand your ground. You raise your arms, you use a loud, firm voice, and you let that bear know it's now in your personal space. Right. Black bears do not want to make physical contact with anything that could injure them, including people and dogs. So they might approach you out of curiosity, and then uh, they'll run away in the other direction. Well, we hope you're right, Lucy, and we do thank you for reminding us of the protocols for that unexpected encounter with the black bears. Lovely to have you on the program this year. Thank you. Lucy Cadman from North Shore Black Bear Society, NorthShoreBears.com. There is a campaign underway by numerous British Columbia, well, it's the booze biz right now, brewers and cideries and uh, vintners, distillers gathering together, putting together a campaign called Time to Buy British Columbian. One of the member companies contributing to this campaign is the Lone Tree Cider Company, and it's a pleasure to welcome their Vice President Sales, Don Gordon, to the program this morning to talk about Time to Buy British Columbia. Don, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. How are you? I am well, thank you, sir. You? Uh, hanging in there. Well, good stuff. Uh, talk to us a little bit first about the Lone Tree Cider Company. Tell us about your outfit, Don, and then we'll broaden the story out a little bit. Yeah, so the Lone Tree Cider Company, we started in 2011. Uh, you know, we were probably one of the first craft cideries that started in British Columbia. A lot of the ciders that were uh, found in BC prior to that were mostly imported. There was some few local produced cideries, but you know, Lone Tree is one of kind of one of the pioneers, and since then, so nine years later, we're looking at you know fifty or sixty cideries in British Columbia. So, yes, yeah, we use uh, uh, apples that are handpicked uh, from about five hundred different growers in the Okanagan. So we partner up with uh, the BC Tree Fruits Company, and so we use uh, their apples, handpicked and press them in the Okanagan, and. Uh, sell them all over BC and Western Canada. And multiple varieties of cider for fans uh, everywhere. And the, the product is now available across the country as well as just here in BC, correct? That's, that's correct. Yeah, we've actually launched in uh, in the LCBO uh, in Toronto. So, yeah, you can get Lone Tree Cider all across the country. We've got about five or six different flavors now. We've got a mix pack. Have something for everybody. Well, that's wonderful news, Don. And how did you come to get involved with Time to Buy British Columbia at Lone Tree Cider? Did they approach you, or were you one of the founding members? So there was a few of us, uh, a few of us from Lone Tree Cider. We were we were talking one day, uh, and then we started having a chat with some of the beer guys, uh, the craft brewery guys. And, you know, we decided, like, now is the time for, I think, for everybody in British Columbia, for no matter what sector you're in, look at everybody is doing it tough right now mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of sectors are you know feeling this economic downturn and so it's like how do we get british columbians to look at our products bc produced products 
and how can we do an awareness campaign? So we got together with the BC Craft Brewers Guild. Uh, we got together with the wines of BC. Uh, we got together with the craft distillers, even the refreshment beverage producers. So there's lots of coolers uh, and ready-to-drink products mm-hmm. that are actually originated in British Columbia. So we put quickly, we put about five or six people together, and we started this campaign. Interesting stuff. Now, I'm, I'm scrolling through the website, and the website, friends, is timetobuybc.ca. And on the website, for example, you identify over 180 craft breweries, just craft breweries, Don, to mm-hmm. choose from in our province. This is 10 years ago. We didn't have 18, I'll bet you. Now we got 180. Oh, between the breweries, the cideries, the distillers, uh, the uh, wineries, we're talking over 600 BC-produced companies in the beverage alcohol industry. Mm. It's fantastic. And uh, in the brewery, the craft brewery section of that industry, there's uh, over 4,500 people employed in the industry. And I guess the idea behind the brewers and the vintners and the cideries like yourselves, the idea is to keep as many of these people employed as humanly possible. Thank you very much. And, and that's just it. This is, about, uh, this is about BC produced products. So this is about companies that are employing people. This is about companies that are keeping their payroll in British Columbia. We're circulating this economy throughout so they can go and, you know, other sectors of it stimulated as well. So it's not just about brands. It's about people. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And, and I'm, again, I'm looking at the, uh, the, uh, as you scroll through the website, there are the, uh, the cideries and, and at least I'm thinking probably three dozen cideries anywhere, Don, just a, a rough estimate as I scroll through all of this. And then there are the ready to ready made drinks, the coolers, etc. And then you get into the distilleries and, uh, it's, just, it's absolutely phenomenal how much, uh, activity has developed in recent years in this sector alone, especially here in BC? Are we different from other parts of Canada, or is this flourishing equally in other provinces too? Well, I actually think that, and it probably stemmed from the brewing uh, industry, the craft brewing industry, but British Columbia is one of the leading provinces when it comes to innovation and beverage alcohol. And I think a, a few years ago, some of the restrictions that that breweries, cideries, and distilleries had imposed on them as far as opening up manufacturing facilities has has gone away. So we've got a lot more, a uh, lot more BC produced companies in uh, in British Columbia. I will say though, it's difficult. Uh, it's difficult to support right now a lot of our. I'm going to call them members. It's not a membership site, right? Uh, but but it's difficult to support some of these people because they're not available at retail. A lot of our uh, participants in this program are they have tasting rooms or they produce their cidery, ciders and wines on site. So they, they require the guests to, to visit them. And it's really difficult now. Ah, of course. Now, I, I, as just as a sort of a blanket statement, uh, I guess it's difficult for you to make, Don, but in terms of these tasting rooms and uh, uh, places where customers can come and purchase the product or whatever, are most of these venues closed now under directive? So this was one of the, uh, uh, one of the key points we had in, in putting out this website is if you click on some of the the members or participants on the site, they'll actually tell you which ones are open and which ones are closed. Now, uh, some of them fall under the restaurant, uh, uh, same with the, the restaurant orders uh, and whatnot. Because so they have restaurants, right, they have restaurants attached to the winery kind Correct. of thing, right, okay. Correct. So 
you know, it's tough. You can't really answer it as a blanket statement, sure. but I'm, I'm going to say probably, you know, half of them at least are shut down permanently. Mm. Uh, well, permanently right now during COVID. Sure. So we'll see what happens. But so, you you know, you click on the website, you scroll through, you can see which uh, which members or participants are open, and hopefully you make a choice to to seek it out and, and you know, put a product in your basket that's produced in B.C. Sure. Not a, a bit of a delicate political dance for you, Mr. Mm. Gordon, for, for a mm. moment, if you don't mind, because sure. the, this campaign is called It's Time to Buy British Columbia, not mm. not to be confused with mm. buy, buy B.C., which, which, which is a campaign that the British, British Columbia Ministry of Agriculture has had up and running for quite some time. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know what? We've we've spoken with the Ministry of Agriculture, and and the provincial government is is behind this program. Good. I should I should remind everybody that this is a non political, not for profit initiative. This mm-hmm. is a consumer awareness product, and the Buy BC program through the provincial government and the Ministry of Agriculture is a fantastic program. And in fact, we're talking with them right now on how to create a synergy and how to you know the more awareness is better. And and I should say that this program, while right now it's on beverage alcohol, it could very well go to other sectors. Okay. And we've had we've had inquiries from outside of beverage alcohol. Hey, can I, how can I be a part of this? I've got a I've got a company that I need to let everybody know it's it's British Columbia produced. Mm-hmm. Right now we're kind of this ragtag volunteer group of people that are working on this on the side of our plates. Uh, but we hope to uh, to bring it all into full together. And and like I say, the provincial government has been very supportive of this program. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, not that we expected much of a fight or anything, but, you know, you never know with bureaucrats what, what's going to flip their switch or not. But in this case, it, it, it's a pretty obvious uh, kind of let's uh, rally around our provincial uh, products and producers. And that's what BuyBC has been about for years anyway. So why wouldn't the government get on side? Absolutely. And Don, right here on the website, if we take time to buy BC now, then we will have a stronger economy when we can all go back to work that's the message in a nutshell isn't it huh you bet you bet I wanted to talk to you. We had the brewmaster from the Central City Brewing Company in Surrey on the program a few weeks ago, Don, and he, like many others in the booze biz in British Columbia, has converted one of his lines in the distillery uh, uh, part of his operation from gin to hand sanitizer, and he's not alone. There's a lot of this effort going on. A lot of people in your industry have rolled over production capability and are doing things like hand sanitizers for the community and in many cases for free yeah it's uh it, it's great how some of our uh our participants and people in our industry have bobbed and weaved and, and can able to adapt and help out the you know do their civic duty to do things like that and i know the folks at central city and and uh you know i think you have to think about it a lot of these uh breweries cideries lone trees feeling it too we've lost we've lost our restaurant sales we've right. lost We've lost that draft cider or, or in beer draft, the draft beer products. So the restaurant industry is hurting too right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we feel terrible for that industry. But since the tanks are half full, uh, you know, uh, in Central City's case, having a distilling license, uh, they can get into that pretty quickly. Sure. So it's, it's good to see. Absolutely. Now, you were talking a little earlier, Don, about uh, other businesses, the non uh, alcohol producing industry not a brewery not a cidery not a distillery but other businesses 
picking up on this time to buy British Columbia campaign that you're putting together and expressing some kind of interest in being part of it. And you welcome all of that. If someone listening to us right now, for example, is a small business person, not particularly involved in brewing or or making anything toxic, (laughs) but nonetheless has a product to contribute that is genuinely 100% made here in BC and would like to join in, how how do they go about contacting you? So, uh, info at time to buy bc.ca. Uh, so that, that was, uh, that's the, uh, that's the inquiry email. And there are about four or five of us that monitor that, that particular, uh, that particular email address. And it all, you know, certainly it all comes down to how much are you willing to pitch in? You know, we've got about eight to 10 people, uh, in, in the beverage alcohol industry that are putting a bit of elbow grease onto this. Sure. And so if you, you know, we're more than happy to take as many inquiries as we can from outside of our sector. You know, if there's a few people that want to jump in and 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 roll with it and pitch in, then we're more than happy to get the ball rolling. And 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 bring them on board, and perhaps with an inclusion from somebody from a different sector of the economy, that opens a door to that sector that that person can indeed get the sort of get the ripple effect going. Right? That's what you're hoping for, right? Absolutely. This is a consumer awareness program. I keep. You know, we've had a lot of inquiries about, you know, what's really behind this? Who's behind this? Like, it can't be all, all good. Like, there's got to be a yeah. What's the sort catch? Of economic, yeah, right, there's yeah. got to be some sort of economic driver behind it. No, this is a simple consumer awareness program to support British Columbia produced products. Full stop. Okay, and so it's all about the website time to buy Then, Don. Yeah, and and again, going back to the. The confusion or the potential confusion with time to buy British Columbia and time to buy BC. This is time to buy British Columbia, just so everybody, uh, everybody, nobody confuses the two programs. Right. Time to buy British Columbia. That's what we're going with. Okay. And uh, the inquiry email, as you just said, I'll just repeat it, info at timetobuybc.ca, correct? Correct. That's how any consumer or any business person interested in perhaps joining in can, can intersect with your team. Absolutely. So talk to us a little bit about what some of the uh, other members of the, uh, of the unit uh, of the economy, your unit of the economy, the brewers, the distillers, the cideries, are doing it to elevate uh, consciousness. As you say, uh, a lot of uh, businesses, particularly established ones with a restaurant component, that is gone, uh, and yet they're still producing product for uh, distribution one way or another. What else are you doing to elevate public awareness beyond this campaign well so i think every every business is different sterling i think that you know you could be a you could be a small cidery or a brewery that actually does not have any packaged product at all okay Uh, it could be a tasting room only uh, or a a, you know you have to go to the brewery or the cidery to to purchase the product on site right so uh with that it's difficult and so you know social media um, word of mouth, it's t- traditional. It's, I guess it's whatever it takes. And I think it's the same for any business right now, is that you need to look under, you know, turn over every stone and figure out what you're going to do. Uh, every single day is different. And so with the beverage alcohol, with some of our, uh, some of our participants on the site, they're looking at uh, the food delivery um, the food delivery sure. services, the yep. skip the dishes and whatnot, and partnering up with local retailers or even some restaurants that have decided to, 
to stay open and do takeout services and, you know, work with their partners in the restaurant industry on a delivery platform that can showcase their product. Uh, social media, uh, charity events and awareness campaigns, it, like I say, it's, it's turning over every stone and, and doing whatever it takes. And it is interesting, too, because the government is cooperating with uh, with restaurants to the extent that if you order a fancy schmancy meal from your favorite place that you can't go to anymore, but they'll happily cook it up for you and send it to your house, you can order a bottle of wine, too, and they'll deliver that Absolutely. as well. And these are some of the things that we're hoping with the Time to Buy British Columbia initiative is that when you do that, please support the restaurants. They're, they're British Columbia uh, you know, they're employing British Columbians and they've got a business and they're like a huge part of the, the economic community and the fabric of our of our neighborhoods. So order from the restaurant. And when you're doing it and you, you want to get a bottle of wine, well, let's make sure it's a BC produced wine. Good point. I'm looking at partners now on Time to Buy British Columbia, uh, BC liquor stores, the obvious ones, the liquor distribution branch, the BC Restaurant and Food Service Association would also expect to be there. What is the Alliance of Beverage Licenses, Don? So this is your this is your licensed retail stores. These are your private beer and wine stores. These are your the 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 beer beer and wine and pub that you're going to go frequent. Uh, oh, these, the non-government stores. The non-government stores. Okay. Guys, we need, yeah, we, and we need to support them as well. Sure. Yeah, they are great partners for all everybody on the website. Um, Able is a, is a huge partner of ours, and so we need to support them as well. Well, it says, again, uh, BC Business employs thousands of local workers. It's the major driver of local economic health, and we need healthy BC businesses for a strong job market when we exit the tunnel of this crisis. And the, the, I guess a big part of this is just making it through the tunnel. We can all see some kind of distant light that appears to be getting a little brighter as various provinces, Saskatchewan probably going to do it first, uh, begin to relax some of their... Uh, governances regarding uh, activity, what businesses are essential, that sort of thing. But we know, I think uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry here in BC has been very, very clear about it. It's going to be a very gradual process, Don. It's not going to be tomorrow, everything's open. That's not going to happen, is it? No, 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 it's not. And some of our members, and again, I keep saying it because I think it's important that we are no different than a lot of other business sectors. And Every day is a new day with more information. And a lot of our members are saying, how long can I last? Sure. How long, how long can this go on when we've got a lot of cideries uh, and breweries that they rely on their tasting rooms and they rely on their draft beer business? Is that we need to get to the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. We need to see that light. Uh, but for some of our members, uh, it's, it's I don't know if they can make it. Yeah, it's pretty tough. Don, thanks very much for this. Uh, hats off to you and the rest of the volunteers that have gotten together and created this uh, consumer awareness campaign. We're very happy to contribute to it by way of telling our listeners about you. The website, friends, is timetobuybc.ca. The campaign is Time to Buy British Columbia. And we thank Don Gordon from the Lone Tree Cider Company for being with us this morning. Don, a pleasure. It's a pleasure to welcome back Alex Chang to the program. Mr. Chang is a lawyer with Lesperance Mendez here in Vancouver. He specializes in strata governance, residential and commercial tenancy law. Uh, he's uh, been on both sides of, of the equation uh, in this situation and has lots of advice and uh, ready to take your calls as well. Alex, good to have you back. Good morning. 
Good morning. So talk to you. Last time, Alex, when we chatted, it was uh, almost time to pay March's rent. And we talked about uh, the, the fact that most people at that point were in a position to, to pay some kind of rent. Now it's a month past that. Some people are going to be okay and are going to make their rent on time. Others, who maybe even made a payment last month, are going to find themselves not able to do so this time around. So let's walk through the ABCs of what to do if you can't afford to pay your rent. So the first thing that uh, there's different uh, systems in place for uh, and assistance in place for commercial versus residential. Okay. I'm going to speak to residential tenants uh, first. Okay. But the, but the general gist is the same. Both, uh, both should be speaking to both kinds of tenants should be speaking with their landlords they should, if they're unable to pay their rent, and they should be applying for whatever assistance is, is available to, to them. In the case of residential tenants, there's a number, you know, if you're unable to meet your rent because uh, you've been uh, temporarily laid off, and right. there's been an, uh, a reduction in, in your uh, uh, employment income, mm-hmm. you know, there's, a num- there's a number of assistance programs that, uh, that will assist you. And then in BC, uh, which, you know, which is unique, still unique to, um, in the provinces, or, is there's this rental uh, assistance program where you can qualify for April, May, and June for, to, ta- uh, to have the province pay for $300 of your rent if you're a person without dependents or $500 of your rent if you do have dependents. Now, that is also cumulative. You can, multiple people within the same rental unit could also apply for that uh, assistance. If, for example, you know, you have two or three roommates, each with, uh, if each of those roommates, assuming they don't have dependents, uh, they could each qualify for the $300 separately because they would qualify as separate households. So ah. if you're a group of roommates that, you know, maybe is paying $2,000, $3,000 in rent, you could, instead of just getting $300, you can get potentially $900, assuming that all of all three people, all three roommates have uh, su- all suffered um, you know, an interruption. That they were all eligible income. for the program, sure. Alex, if you apply for this program, this, this uh, subsidy or uh, this bit of a provincial assistance, does the 300 or $500 check, depending on circumstances, does the check come to you or does it go directly to your landlord? Uh, so it goes to the landlord. It's a two-part application process. And uh, the, so the tenant needs to apply first. Uh, and satisfy the requirements, and then if they do, then the landlord will be prompted to uh, accept the benefit, and uh, and the, and the, the payment will be paid directly to them. Okay, so at least if, as you know, back to the original question: What do you do if you can't afford your rent? Well, and and your your and this is exactly the same advice you gave us a month ago. For crying out loud, reach out to the person to whom you're supposed to pay the rent, and have some kind of conversation about your inability to meet your obligations at this point. And starting the conversation with "but I've applied for the provincial subsidy" is not a bad thing, right? No, and uh, you know, on, and on the flip side, you know, if if you're a land, you know, if you're a landlord and you know anything about uh, you know your tenant's financial circumstances, 
you know, you could also make things a little bit easier by reaching out to your tenants. If you know, for example, that your tenants work in certain uh, industry sectors that are have been likely been affected by this, right? You know, you can the land landlords are all you know should also be encouraged to reach out to their tenants and say, you know, what is what is your situation? You know, I'd like to I'd like you know at, at very least like to start having that conversation with you now about you know what assistance is available to you what assistance perhaps I can provide as your landlord and uh, um, uh, again just uh, uh, to create a greater understanding on both sides of the conversation Alex exactly like just getting some goodwill uh, built up between the between the two and that rather than rather than having a very unhappy surprise come uh, May 1st is it is it also reasonable to assume that if you can't make rent for the next couple of months or whatever you will be expected to back pay that rent when you're back on the job and you've got your feet underneath you again that's not an unreasonable expectation on the part of the landlord is it uh, well, it'll depend on what uh, what the parties agree to. Okay. But, you know, there is there is no requirement for the landlord to uh, forgive rent, right? Uh, as opposed to just allow for a deferral a deferral of rent. And I mean, at this at this particular point, you know, the the landlord doesn't really have much of a choice but to defer some 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 amount of the rent because they can't evict, and it's gonna it would take time to to get a judgment against uh, the landlord to enforce you know the the debt for rent Mm -hmm. but um but you know it'll depend i think on the circumstances that each party is dealing with some landlords might feel that they are in a position to forgive rent other landlords are going to make a different decision and it's really it's really up to uh up to them to have that discussion but there isn't a requirement on landlords to agree to forgive to forgive rent as opposed to just defer it. Exactly, because of course in many cases, and a lot of tenants understand this, you're basically making your landlord's mortgage payments plus if the landlord landlord's lucky a few extra bucks uh, to put in the savings account, but the, the mortgage payments may be deferred by the bank with appropriate interest of course, but they're not going to go away so it's not, it's it's fairly reasonable to expect that neither should you expect your, your rent to be forgiven or to just evaporate I Either. No, I mean each landlord is going to have to make their own assessment as to what their, uh, you know, what their, what they, what they can bear. And you know, mo- many landlords do do have fixed cost mortgages sure. that they need to that they need to look after, and and that'll have to be a part of the, uh, you know, the uh, the discussion the discussion that they have. Right. Yeah. You know, the and uh, and ten- and you know and it's some- and it is something for te- for tenants to to be. You know, some somewhat mindful of you know both really essentially both sides. It's not going to be a good financial situation for either side in the you know in the in these circumstances. So really, you know the the you know the common phrase is we're all in it together. That both sides need to kind of reach out to each other and and reach some kind of mutual understanding. The landlord and the tenant really do need to reach out to each other and in some way establish the fact that, okay, I'm not going to cut it. I'm not going to be able to pay the whole deal this, but, you know, I'm going to apply for the subsidy and I'll give you what I can. And if that ends up being half the rent or two-thirds of the rent or one-third of the rent, at least it's, A, 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 an all-important gesture of goodwill and, B, some cash, Alex. 
Yeah, no, that's cer- that's certainly true. I mean, the tenant's obligation is is to pay is to pay the rent. Yep. And they should pay as much as much of the rent as they as they re- as they reasonably can. And one and one of the ways they can do that is to apply for all is to apply for the benefits that are available to them. Indeed, let's talk about small business and that package the Feds put together this week. Seventy five billion dollars, I believe, was the total amount uh, for subsidies for small businesses in all areas of activity. What did you make of it from your perspective, from the real estate side of things, in terms of settling or helping small businesses resolve again fixed? costs that will not go away yeah so i think it's uh you know it's, it's essentially proposing what i think is a pretty reasonable uh compromise between commercial landlords and and uh, and their tenants you know um you know who are both facing a very you know pretty dire uh, economic uh, circumstance so the basics of the deal is that the government uh the landlord will need to agree to uh, a reduct to a reduction of the rent, the government will then uh, pay or give a forgivable loan for covering fifty percent of the rent for April, May, and June okay. to businesses that have either experienced a seventy percent drop in their revenues or have uh, and have temporarily or have temporarily ceased their operations entirely to promote social distancing. Then twenty five percent. The landlord would then have to forgive the twenty twenty five percent of the rent, and then the tenant would be responsible for the other twenty five percent. So, uh, the government is taking the lion's share of the uh, of the hit sure. for the com- for the commercial rent. The landlord is taking uh, you know twenty five percent hit, whatever the rent happens to be, and the tenant is still responsible for you know up to twenty five percent. And the loan from the government is only forgive, forgiven if if the uh, landlord um, keeps to that agreement to, to limit the the tenant's exposure to up, up to twenty five percent of the rent. Right. So it's a, it's a pretty reasonable, uh, uh, you know, it's a pretty substantial bailout. If you're, you know, this this quali- the qualifying businesses, and you know, there's still details to be uh, released. You know, our businesses that are paying up to fifty thousand dollars a month in rent. So mm-hmm. if you're, you know, if you're paying, uh, you know, so you, the government is agreeing to pay twenty twenty five thousand dollars of that of that rent, and then the and the you know, so what could have been previously a fifty thousand dollar fixed bill for the tenant would be twelve twelve thousand five hundred. Sure, bill. yeah. And the landlord and the landlord is taking a twelve thousand five hundred dollar hit. Mm-hmm. Now, some people have noted, you know, one one thing that other people have noted, and I've noted, is that there are going to be some landlords that don't want. You know, this requires an agreement from all parties. The uh, this is the offer that the government is 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 making, and it's conditional on the landlord on everybody getting on the same page. Sure. Exactly. On taking this 25% hit, there are going to be some landlords that aren't going to want to agree to this. Unfortunately, I think that many, many will, because there's going to be, uh, you know, in these circumstances, you know, an, an, you know, a tenantless uh, commercial space, you know, is going to have its own uh, problems for the landlord. That's right. Zero is uh, less desirable than something, even 25% of something. Alex Chang, thanks for this. We're we're fresh out of time. I am once again grateful for yours, sir. We we do appreciate your your calm and steady hand on the tiller uh, as we approach yet another month end, and we must do this again. Thanks, Alex.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.